Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As a child, I did not watch the show The Joy of Painting with Bob Ross, um, but it did make a resurgence some years ago, and you all might have seen it. You know, he's the guy that has the big, bushy, curly hair, and, and he always paints, and he's like, let's just put a little tree here, and, and uh, very calm, calming sort of thing to watch. But what's interesting is the way he painted, because you had to observe things develop gradually. It was not all at once. Like, and he also didn't like start with a pencil sketch so you could see the outline and then color it in. That's not what he did. It was actually, it had an appearance of being reckless in the way he did it, because he had this palette with these colors, and he would just start you know, putting it on there, and it looked like, man, what is he doing? How is this all going to come, ar- come around to a picture? And, and then, and of course, he also would be using like the same brush and he like mix it with the other paints, which for me was just like, how can he do this? This is awful. But what you learned was that it always did come together. And actually it came together to be a nice, splendid little piece of artwork. Um, so you learned over time that he knows what he's doing. He's painting uh, a, a picture and he's, he's doing it in... in uh, in a way that you can't necessarily see what he's doing, but in the mind of the artist, he knows what he's doing. And, and it comes to fruition. So, in a sense, you learn to trust that it's going to amount to something. It's not just splotches on, uh, on canvas. It's not like some modern art. Um, anyway, I'm not a modern art critic, so I don't know. Maybe the splotches on canvas mean something. But anyway. Uh, but no, his was a, a, a beautiful landscape when he would paint it. It would come together. So why do I say all that? Uh, Well, because trust in God can work very much the same way sometimes. We think that we know what God is doing, then the unexpected occurs. The thing that we didn't anticipate. It looks maybe even reckless, uh, like like that uh, splotch of paint shouldn't be there. That's not the right thing. That can't be God's plan we say to ourselves. That's what's going on here in this confession of Simon Peter. He confessed Jesus to be the Christ. But at the same time, he denied what it means to be the Christ. You are the Christ. But when he made that confession, he had an an idea in his mind of what it meant to be the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. But in Peter's mind at that time, that meant shining in glory, the Christ, not suffering an ignominious death. Far be it for the Christ to suffer that. Lenski, who you know I love to quote because I love to read his commentaries, puts it this way. Though Jesus is the Messiah and God's Son, no golden, glorious, refulgent earthly kingdom and grandeur lie ahead, but the very opposite. See, if Jesus Christ ushered in an earthly kingdom the way that Simon Peter was looking for it, you would still be dead in your sins. This is what God plainly sees. He plainly sees that. But this is what the apostles missed. They couldn't see the whole picture. The cross is offensive on at least two fronts. First, it's offensive to the pious Jew 
who is awaiting this glorious Messiah, that the Messiah should suffer a scandalous death. That's the first offense. Secondly, that his death would come at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. These are the religious leaders of the Jews. And they're the ones who are going to treat the Messiah in this way. And see, so this is offensive on, really on all fronts, this is offensive. This must not be. That's what they're thinking. This cannot be. Yet Jesus likens that opposition, however well-meaning it may have been, he likens that opposition to Satan. He looks at it and says, treats it as though this is a temptation of Satan. Satan is the one who would draw me away from the cross. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? We hear that in Luke 24, following his resurrection. Was it not necessary? Of course it was. It's a rhetorical question. It was necessary that he should suffer. Now, Psalm 25, which was featured in the intro at this morning, um, we have this, this, it was the antiphon, so it was repeated uh, at the end of the intro. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. That mercy is expressed in the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ in a way which truly does surpass human understanding. Now the passage from Romans 5, a passage from Romans 5 uh, that we read this morning gives us the proper perspective for this. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Yes, Jesus died as a propitiation for the sins of the world, including even those who were there crucifying him at that time, and including you and me. This is exceptionally good news for those who know that they're sinners in need of a Savior. Think about those words. We were enemies. We were enemies. And while we were enemies, he was reconciling us to God through the work of the cross. This is why it is a satanic temptation that pushes, that would push Jesus away from the cross. And it's the same temptation that would push us away from the cross both the cross that Christ bore for your sins, as well as the cross that you may be called on to bear for Christ. The cross is still an offense. Even to Christians, the cross is an offense. You'll notice that we do not have a crucifix. We could rectify that, but we don't right now. I do wear a crucifix. crucifix. But why is that? Why do we have an empty cross? Some will say, oh, well, it's because Jesus raised from the dead, you know. Well, then let's have an empty tomb. I mean, that would be the more appropriate symbol. The cross symbolizes his death. That's what it should symbolize. 
But why is it so popular? Well, because his death is still an offense. We, we just we don't want to see that. We don't want to see that the Christ should suffer and die for our sins. It speaks to our sinful and wretched nature. Of course, there's also the uh, matter of outward appearance and how sinful humans can convert outward appearances, mostly of their neighbors. You know, you look at the outward appearances of people around you and then you convert that into some sign or mark of God's favor or lack thereof. Oh, they must be living rightly because God has blessed them. Oh, they must be living sinfully because God has condemned them to suffer in this way. I mean, there is a proverbial truth, you know, that that's, if we flout God's law, we are bound to suffer for it. And if we follow God's law, even apart from faith, we were bound to benefit from it because it's not given for no practical purpose. You know, there is a practical purpose. Uh, purpose to it. It's natural law written on the hearts of men. But at the same time, there is not a direct correlation. Think about uh, Job. Think about his friends. His friends came to him. They loved him. They were true friends. I mean, they did. They sat with him silently for seven days. So they did. it's, not like they, it's not like they were sort of just acquaintances or something. They are real friends, and they loved him. But ultimately, they said, hey, Job, you got to root out this sin that you've committed, whatever it is, because you know you've done something. God, I mean, even to the point where they were offended that Job would say, look, I don't know. I don't know what it is that I've done that would incur this wrath of God. Well, there's dramatic irony. We know because in Job 1 and Job 2, we see that Job wasn't picked on because he was a miserable sinner. He was actually picked on by Satan because he was a righteous and upright person. So uh, in his case, his suffering is related to him being upright, not because he brought it on himself. Oh, but we just, oh, we struggle with that, including his friends, because they have to sit there and say, Job, man, if you can just root out that sin you've committed, there's something you've done. And then they're offended like, Wait, are you saying that God would allow this to happen to you if you hadn't brought it on yourself? That's an offense against God. God says, of course, the whole lot of them, who are all you? Where were you when I created the foundations of the earth? A little ounce of humility would be helpful. All right, if we suffer as Jesus did, does that mean that God has forsaken us? No, of course not. By no means. So should we be ashamed to, to suffer? Should we be ashamed to suffer? I've done something wrong. Otherwise, why would I suffer like this? No, no, by no means. We do not need to be afraid to suffer. We don't need to be afraid to take up the cross. Whatever that might mean, however that plays out in our life, we don't need to be afraid to take up the cross. That can be understood in different ways, so it's not... Uh, we, we don't need to treat that as admonition to be a martyr you know, and go around you know, whipping ourselves or something. This, in reality, what this means is a word of comfort that says if this is the way life treats you in the midst of perhaps feeling forsaken, know that you're not forsaken. You are not forsaken by God. 
It's comfort because Jesus is saying that you who receive the gospel have everlasting life that cannot be taken from you, no matter what happens to this earthly life that you have. Now, Jesus said at the end of our gospel, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What that means is, and, and again, don't, don't take that as, as some sort of threat. Like, you better, you better not be ashamed of me or else. No, he's saying, don't be ashamed of the cross. Don't be ashamed of the cross. Don't be afraid to speak to, your, to yourself, to others, the words of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that I am redeemed by Jesus Christ because he has taken my sins upon the cross. As Paul said to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Yes, yes, it is. Rejoice, all you who call out for God's mercy. He is trustworthy. He is not forsaking you. He is faithful to you, even when you're not faithful to him. He, is, he remains faithful, even when we are faithless. That's not a call to faithlessness either. That's a call to trust in him because he is a gracious, loving heavenly father, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, not seeking to condemn anyone, but seeking salvation for all people. So hear those words and believe and call on the name of the Lord. He is trustworthy and will fulfill his promises. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.